Our second reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 1 to 32, starting on page 1022. Very early in the morning, the chief priests, with the elders, the teachers of the Lord, the whole Sanhedrin, reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and turned him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is, as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him, and then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. One Saturday morning, three men woke up and realized their life had changed forever. 
In the semi-comatose state, their first conscious thoughts were like any other day, until they suddenly remembered where they were and what had happened the previous day. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a, a wake-up like that. Sometimes the transition from dreaming to waking can be very disorienting. Asleep, you're in a fantasy world of unreality. And then you come out of the dream, remember where you are, what day it is, and you come back down to reality. But then you suddenly remember something else, something maybe dramatic or different that happened the day before. Where are the curtains? Oh, yes, yesterday I moved house. Why didn't the alarm go off? On Friday, I lost my job. Who's this beside me? Oh, yes, yesterday I got married. What are those palm trees? Oh, I'm on holiday. Why is my jaw dislocated? Yesterday, I had an argument with a lamppost. And whatever it is, as a result, today is going to be different. Now, these three men, they're real people. And the day was a real Saturday. Though I'm imagining they went through a similar experience. One was perhaps in a refugee camp outside the city, one in an ethnic minority ghetto on the edge of the city, and the third in the officers' quarters in the middle of town. The refugee sat bolt upright. For every day for weeks he'd been in prison, and today, like the sunlight streaming into his tent that he hadn't seen for weeks, it suddenly dawned on him. Yesterday, I was in a condemned cell. I was awaiting execution, and I deserved it. I'd joined the terrorist rebellion. I'd murdered a handful of men. I was due to be crucified. And now I'm back in the camp with a huge crowd of friends and supporters, and I'm free. I'm alive. I'm only now piercing together, piecing together what happened. But early yesterday morning, there was a huge commotion. Even from deep in my cell, I could hear it. There was another prisoner. He'd been overnight in the cell next to mine, though strangely, I didn't hear a single sound from him. What I'm gathering piece by piece is that this is the one they've been calling a king, though he's innocent of any crime of treason, unlike the pretender that we've been leading in revolt to place on the throne. Just before nine o'clock yesterday morning, my cell door was unbolted, and I thought, Barabbas, this is it. This is the moment I've been dreading. They've come for me. Within the hour, my hands and feet will be nailed to a cross. I only beg they put me out of my agony. Oh, God, may it not be prolonged. Let me die quickly. There in the doorway stood a centurion. He opened his mouth. And the next thing he said, the words, I still can hardly believe it. You're free. The poor wretch next door, the so-called king, he will die in your place. You can go, you're free. I still can't take it in. Jesus has died instead of me, in my place. Yesterday I was condemned to die. Today I'm a free man. Yesterday I was guilty. Today I'm forgiven. Now, from that Saturday morning... Fast forward in your imagination 20 years to a middle-aged man called John Mark. He's writing this history up for future generations. John Mark, this Jesus movement has become a church, the people of Christ. What's the lesson for this 
and future generations. And Mark replies in our imagination, well, for the individual, what Barabbas experienced, every true follower of Jesus can also say. That's why I put it in the story. I was condemned to die, today I go free. I was guilty, I'm forgiven. And all this is because Jesus died in my place. Jesus was totally innocent of all charges. Even Pilate had to admit it. Barabbas was guilty as charged. And the innocent die in the place of the guilty. Mark tells us that every true Christian can say the same. You can this morning if you've put your trust in him, if you've exchanged your life for his. He died, you live. But secondly, there's a lesson Mark tells us for the church. There's a lesson about the king and the magistrate. Notice the repeated word king, verse 2, verse 9, verse 12. Pilate stands for the civil authority, the secular state in every age. And one message Mark was telling his readers, the early church, was this warning. Even the great Roman law, the most civilized and sophisticated legal system in the history of the world, as he was writing to the church in Rome, on which our own British legal system was based, even this will not give the church the legal protection they expect. Secular kings, when they come up against the king of kings, will usually oppose him. And so it turns out still today. The state, secular society, is generally antipathetic to the church. But come back to that first Saturday morning, the second man from a minority background, a black man from Cyrene in North Africa. He woke up in the ethnic ghetto on the edge of the city. He rubbed his eyes, he stretched his legs. They were stiff after a long walk yesterday back from the countryside. He massaged his shoulders, which were strangely bruised, grazed, and he rubbed his aching shoulder, and too suddenly remembered the events of the day before. He too realized his life had changed forever. Nothing would be the same again. Yesterday, my two boys, Alexander and Rufus, and I, we were on our way back home. We'd been camping in the countryside. And as we were passing by the palace, the praetorium, we came across a huge demonstration, a crowd jeering and shouting either side of the main street. And we were pushing our way through the mob when, for a terrifying moment, a desperately dangerous incident occurred. A soldier lining the way suddenly grabbed me, and he shouted, This one will do! And he pulled me out of the crowd with his arm round my neck and a sword pointing at my throat. Alexander and Rufus didn't know what to do. I could see they were about to struggle with the soldier to try to free me, and I motioned them not to resist. It was a perilous moment for all three of us. I was pulled out of the crowd, through the line of soldiers along the way, and into the middle of the street. And to my horror, I realized it was an execution procession, and I was in the middle of the gang. What was happening? Was I to be summarily executed as well? 
For what reason? What had I done? Three condemned men with their crosses were stumbling along the street, goaded by spears and whips and the insulting mockery of the mob. One of the men was already so badly beaten up, so weak and lacerated, he'd fallen and was lying on the ground, trapped by his cross on top of him. I was thrown forward roughly towards him, and then I realized I wasn't to be crucified. I'd been commandeered to carry the cross. I picked it up. It weighed a ton. And I struggled painfully to drag it along the cross on my shoulder. The foot of it dragged along the ground. And the pathetic criminal stumbling, almost crawling just behind me. Barely uttering a word. All along that dreadful journey out to Golgotha, I had the strangest mixture of feelings. On the one hand, I was relieved it was not I, but he who was going to die. But I experienced something I've never experienced before. I went ahead with him immediately behind, and as we met each new section of the soldiers and the crowd, they all shouted and ridiculed and jeered and mocked us. I had the strangest feeling of sharing his suffering. The hatred they hurled at him, I felt as if it was hurled at me. I experienced his shame. The insults and mockery he received, I received. Again, fast forward in your imagination 20 years. John Mark this church has been growing for 20 years now. What are the lessons for us today? And Mark replies, well, there's a lesson for the individual. For only a few days before, and it's recorded in chapter 8, Jesus had said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Anyone. And what happened to Simon of Cyrene that day must happen to every true Christian. For we identify with the cross of Christ. And we carry his cross in the sense that we identify ourselves as his followers and occasionally, yes, bear his shame. But we also carry a cross of our own. For to be a Christian is to say, I'm done with the old life, the life of saying yes to self, yes to self-centered ambition, yes to self-governing decisions in all I do. I say no to all of those, to a life oriented around me. And now I say yes instead to Christ, to follow him. My life from this day will revolve around his plans, his guidance, his direction, his ways. But notice this difference. Look at the end of verse 21. They forced him to carry the cross. You and I must do it willingly. And I didn't know, but if Simon converted to Christ, that means he had to carry two crosses. Christ's by force and his own willingly. And Mark says, there's a lesson for the church we see Jesus in the hands now, not of the magistrate, Pilate, but of the military using their force. 
And although Simon is roughly coerced by the soldiers and Jesus powerless beside him, Mark reminds us that Jesus is still the king. Unwittingly, putting a robe of purple, the royal color, upon him, twisting a crown of thorns on his head, verse 17. They crown him as a king, verse 18. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! The Roman army, like the Roman legal system, was the most advanced military machine in the world to date. And it ruled the whole world. Arguably, the Roman Empire was far more far-reaching than any empire that ever preceded or followed it. And one message that Mark was telling his readers in Rome was this warning, the soldiers won't always be there to protect you. And so it has proved. The church in every age has discovered that military dictatorships are by and large against it. And finally, come back to that first Saturday morning. Our third man was one of those soldiers. And as he woke up in his army quarters in the Praetorium, part of the old palace of Herod, he too suddenly realized that his life had changed forever. Friday, the day before, had been a day like many other gruesome days overseeing executions. And on Friday mornings, always ensuring that by the end of the day, all the wretched victims were dead and taken down from the cross before sundown when the Sabbath began. There were enough mob demonstrations without causing more Jewish religious riots. But that day, one criminal was unlike any other he had ever witnessed. Now, notice again how Mark tells us the beginnings of what the centurion must have witnessed that day as he led the procession of victims to their execution. This is verses 22 to 32. The king and the multitude. Here we see the passers-by in verse 29, hurling their insults, shaking their heads. The priests and lawyers in verse 31, mocking him among themselves. And the other two victims... There were robbers in the procession in verse 32. They too heaped insults on him. The whole crowd, every single group, a veritable trinity of swearing, hateful, ridiculing scorners. Twenty years later, as he wrote this up, Mark, what are you telling us? Well, as with the magistrate and the military, so too with the multitude, Jesus is totally vulnerable and passive at their mercy. But Mark is desperate to reassure us that he is still, nevertheless, the king. But there's great irony. For he will come down from the cross, and although he did not save himself as they taunted him, in verse 31, he is set on saving others. And meanwhile, God has his agents staked out. God has his marked men and women, fifth columnists, if you like, at every stage. Like Barabbas, ironically named son of the father. Did he become a Christian? Like Simon, did he become a Christian? Like the centurion, did he? Do you see, God has his men and women 
in position. They don't necessarily realize at the time that they've been positioned by God, but he has placed them. And the next one, of course, is Joseph of Arimathea in verse 43. Even in that hate-filled council of the Sanhedrin, God has his man prepared to do his will. So who's in control? And that's the lesson for the individual, wherever you are, wherever you may be. Even some of us today may feel we're in a very isolated position at home or at work. But God has placed you there to follow Christ, however that works out for you. And the lesson for the church is this. Generally, the multitude is hostile to Christ. Let's use another M word for multitude, a more contemporary one that rings more bells for us. The media are generally hostile to Christ. Even in relatively tolerant Britain today, the media are almost totally hostile to Christ. To sum up, Mark, if you hadn't realized it already, is writing to the church in Rome in the 50s AD. Rome represents the pagan secular world then and now, and the church is warned not to rely on the rule of law or the protection of soldiers or the verdict of the crowd. These will not necessarily rally to your defense. And that's a message we may need to hear more of in Britain in the next few years. But there is a Christ who is nevertheless the king. And you and I are called to step out of the crowd and wherever we are to follow him.